You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. Luke chapter 15 is where you need to be uh, hanging out. Um, so if you've got a Bible, make sure you have flipped there. And we are about to start a series. It's probably going to last us six weeks all total um, as we kind of work through this chapter and uh, um, work through the details. And man, I hope that it's going to be a real blessing to you and our church family as we do it. And hey, one disclaimer just before we get rolling. Um, one of the, the men that God has used over the last several years to really shape how I've thought about um, the gospel, one, and all that God has done for us in Jesus and how that relates to the daily grind of our life, and specifically this chapter of Luke. Luke 15 is a guy named Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City. He wrote a book called The Prodigal God over this chapter of the Bible. That is in, it's great. It's incredible. I'd encourage you to grab that book uh, maybe over the next month. If you're looking for some good summer reading, it would be a great book for you to read and to digest and to, to spend a couple of months in. And so I want to give just that disclaimer and uh, we'll get rolling. So here, here's the plan for today. I want to give you four reasons why we're going to do Luke 15. And uh, in that, I think it will give us the last question specifically. We'll kind of sit on and it'll give us some rails to kind of run on for the morning and uh, take us where we want to go. So uh, number one, um, four reasons why. Number one, this chapter needs to be revived. Um, Okay, now when, when I'm saying that, um, it, it's not a knock on the chapter. What, what the issue is, is I think it's familiar to a lot of us in here. Um, so it, it's so familiar that it, it kind of has a tendency to shut us off from it. Like it's familiar enough that you don't have to grow up in church. You really don't have to be a part of a church um, to know what the word prodigal means. And just think about that. The word prodigal is not a 21st century word. Um, the, the only reason that word makes its way into our vocabulary periodically is because of this story in the Bible right? And so there's just a general awareness of this story. And and here's the problem when we're overly familiar with the story, is it has a tendency to turn us off of that story. Uh, Listen to the words of John DeWitt as he kind of describes the danger of of being familiar with something. Um, John DeWitt, he's written extensively kind of on this chapter as well. He says this, the danger in speaking of a passage from the Bible so well known and much loved is that our minds will be close to receiving New. And when he says new, I think he's talking bigger and brighter truth from it, deeper and a more robust understanding of it. So he's saying that, that our minds will be close to receiving new um, truth from it. We may too easily suppose that all the facets of the story have long since been de- uh, disclosed to us and that nothing more is to be learned from it. And, and you know this to be true. Think about the posture. Like if, if you were to walk into a math class and they were to start teaching two plus two equals four, like your posture instantly turns toward Dude, what are we doing? Like we learned that in, in kindergarten or whatever we, I mean, way, way back then. And, and so our posture changes when we think we've got down to the bottom of something and we understand something. Our posture turns not toward, or not, our posture turns from being, God, teach me, show me. God, will you, will you bend me and break me with this passage to let's move on to something that actually might do that, right? And so listen to what he goes on to say. He says, but to fall into that attitude is to forget the divine person who first conceived this parable and the incapacity of a man's mind to plumb the depths of what Christ knows of God and of the heart of man. And so one of my hopes for you as we work through a very, a very familiar passage, I know that for many of you, y'all have heard sermons preached on this. I, I know all, like, I know all of that for you. But my hope for you is that over the next few weeks that God would literally, for your, for your kind of in your vision, in your mind and how you see and think, that God would bring these words to life and that through this chapter and these words that he might breathe great life into you. 
So I think that it needs to be revived. It's so familiar that it almost works against a lot of us as we work for understanding what God is trying to communicate to us through it. Okay, so that's number one, that it needs to be revived. Number two, second reason, is this chapter gives a graphic view of the gospel. It gives a graphic view of the gospel. It puts the gospel in story form, much like our man Jonah um, from the beginning of the year. It takes these great gospel themes of sin and repentance, uh, redemption and reconciliation, uh, of grace. It takes these great big gospel themes and puts them in the form of a story. And it says, do you see them in here? Like, look at this story and, and see grace. Look at this story and see sin. Look at this, this story and see forgiveness. Look at this story and see reconciliation and redemption. It puts all of these great big things in a story and it gives them to you in high definition. Okay, li- listen to Tim Keller as he comments on this. He says, on the surface of it, the narrative is not all that gripping. I believe, however, that if the teaching of Jesus is likened to a lake, the famous parable of the prodigal son would be one of the clearest spots where we can see all the way to the bottom. And I think it's true. I think it it gives us a a graphic display of these great gospel themes. And and so as you pray for your own heart, maybe it's ambitious for you to pray that you can get all the way to the bottom of the unsearchable riches of Christ that, that Paul calls the gospel in Ephesians 3. But, but maybe you could pray that, that over the next few weeks that God would grow you in gospel awareness, that you would be able to see a few feet deeper into the lake, right? And, and just a quick note on parables. Um, this is the first time that we as a church family have worked through a parable together or a series of parables together. And so I think it's important for you to get a, a, a kind of your mind wrapped around what God is doing with parables. Like a lot of people have this, this view of parables that, that the reason... Jesus told stories was to kind of keep the crowd engaged and entertained. And that's not the prime, they did do that, but that's not the primary reason that God told or Jesus told parables to, to his listening circle. The primary reason he does that, he explains it in um, several different places. Mark chapter four, Luke chapter eight. He says that the reason I do this is because when I tell a story like this, those who have spiritual eyes, they can see it. Those who have spiritual ears, like th- those people get what I'm saying. But those who don't have spiritual eyes, those whose hearts have been hardened to all this, th- they look around after a story thinking, what just happened, right? And so you've got one group that in a parable sees it and another group that doesn't. One group that hears it and another group that doesn't hear it. And so maybe another thing you could pray for your own heart as we work through this, these parables is that God would give you the sort of eyes that you could actually see. And God would give you the sort of ears that you could actually hear. Right? And so, so maybe God would do that, that for us. Okay, so number two, that it gives a graphic display of the gospel. And here's number three. That this chapter is an often misunderstood chapter of the Bible. Luke 15, I mean, I, I'm telling you, probably one out of three times I hear this, this chapter preached, it is preached wrongly. Okay, now I'm not out to dog preachers, I am one, right? So I'm not out to dog them, but I think in this instance, Preachers need to be dogged just a little bit. I, this is what happens. This is the, the, the trap that I think a lot of, you know, pastors and preachers get kind of shoved into the corner with, um, is that they're given a topic, and let's just say the topic is parenting. They want to do something for their, their church family on parenting. And so the next thing they have to do after they decide that is, where in the Bible does it talk about parenting? Now, here's what happens with Luke 15. Um, preachers look at Luke 15 and think, there's two sons and there's a father. That's parenting, right? Okay, now, now listen, I, I'm, I'm really not out to just slam them, but here's the thing. This chapter has nothing to do with parenting. 
It's not a chapter on parenting. It's not a chapter for a parent to go through to learn how, how do you um, parent your teenager. That is not the point of this chapter. It's not what God is getting at. It's not the reason Jesus told these three parables. That is not what, what's going on here. What's going on here, the point of these three chapters, the central message of this chapter is God is showing us his heart towards sinners. He's showing us how he searches after sinners. He's showing us a picture of our sin, our running from God, and his grace that runs after, that relentlessly and radically and recklessly gives grace to sinners. That's what he's showing us here. And listen, he's showing us this contrast of, of that heart of God that runs after, this heart of grace that runs after sinners, and this contrast between that heart and the heart of these Pharisees, who are muttering that Jesus actually has tax collectors and sinners around them. See, it's this contrast between the heart of God and the grace of God towards the world and the self-righteous, self-absorbed, self-centered heart of the Pharisees. Uh, Listen to uh, one author describe the central message. He, He says it this way. The central message of the parable then is an urgent and sobering entreaty to hard-hearted listeners, these Pharisee type people, who attitudes exactly mirror the elder brothers. The parable of the prodigal son is not a warm and fuzzy feel-good message. It's not just, this is my heart towards sinners. It is that, but it's more than that. Okay, if you preach it just that way, if that's the only thing we talked about was this is God's hearts towards sinners, we would not be getting at the main point of the passage. Um, he goes on. It's not just a feel-good message, but it is a powerful wake-up call with a very earnest warning. Jesus is pointing out the stark contrast between God's own delight in the redemption of sinners and the Pharisees' inflexible hostility towards those same sinners. See, it's not a five-step, this is how you parent a teenager. It is a one big picture shot of this is God's hearts towards sinners and here are the Pharisees. Here's the self-righteous, the self-absorbed, the, the people who really think they're above the grace of God. And, and here's the contrast between God's heart and their heart towards these same sinners. Okay, and this is going to be reason number four to us, or for us. Reason number four, and this is, this is going to give us rails to run on. This is where we're going to spend the rest of the morning. Um, and I, I, before I even say what I'm about to say here, I want you to know, you're going to have to get ready to think a little bit. Right? And so I'm trying to introduce something that we haven't talked about really yet. Um, I've waited until we got to this passage to bring this up. And, uh, it's something that is essential that we as a church family grow in understanding this. Okay? So here's the fourth reason why I think it's really important that we tackle this chapter. Number four is that Luke 15 reveals the two ways of running from God. It reveals that there are two ways, not just one way of running from God. See, I think a lot of Christians assume that running from God, and the storied presentation of sin in this chapter is running from God. That's what it looks like. Sin equals, here's the father over here, here's his house, here's submission to his leadership, and here, here's running. It's taking off in the other direction. It's, it's the older brother staying out of the feast. It, it's running from God. And I, I think a lot of people have in their mind that when, when you run from God, that, that's a one direction type thing. It equals the way of the prodigal. But, but we're about to see in this chapter that there's actually two ways to run from God, not just one way to run from him. Okay, now with that said, um, 
I, I want to try to jump in and, and try to give some definition of that and try to explain some things that revolve around that. So I've got this broken down into three or four different sections. Here's the first one. I want to try to give a definition for the two ways of running from God. I want to try to help this make sense to you and just start the process of exposing you to what, what it looks like to run in God in two different ways. Okay, now to do that, we've got to know the context of Luke 15. See, this is why people preach it like it's parenting. It's because they forget that it was actually written to a specific group of people. And you see those people that it was written to in Luke 15, chapter, or verse 1 and, and verse 2. And they're not asking a parenting question. That's not the context, okay? So look at, look at verse 1 and 2, and this will kind of help us um, see who the listening circle is. Who the people are that are listening to this and what they're thinking as they listen to all this. Okay, so Luke 15, starting in verse 1, says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners, that's going to be part one, kind of group one of this listening circle, tax collectors and sinners, were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. Verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes, that's going to be group two of this listening circle. They grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And that word eat, that, that's like a term of endearment. That's, that's an offer of friendship. Like it, it means a little bit more than when we have somebody over to our house or go to, out to eat with somebody. It, it's like a, a friendship um, invitation. It, it, they're saying, listen, he eats with them. And so you've got these two groups that are in the listening circle. Okay, now it's really important that we get a picture of who these two groups are. Group one, we've got tax collectors and sinners. So let me try to explain um, both of these two groups for you. First of all, tax collectors. Now, if, if you did not grow up in church and you just heard the word tax collectors, here's what you probably think. Um, well, that's a person that collects taxes. Sounds simple enough to me, right? But that's not what the word tax collectors conveyed into this listening circle. Now, if you grew up in church, here's what you probably think. And let's just say you grew up in church in like the six, or the 70s and 80s. And let's just say you were actually in like a children's class in the 70s or 80s. They broke out the flannel board. You remember those? And they got their felt out. And they probably were talking about Zacchaeus. Remember that guy in Luke, I think it's 19? He's the tax collector. He's up in the tree. He's trying to see Jesus. Jesus brings him into the home. So they're explaining Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And here's their, here's how they probably explained to you what tax collectors were. Tax collectors, it's not that they were like bad people, they might have said. It's just that they were people who, who extorted like the people of Israel. So rather than just taking what the tax was, they would, they would extort the people and take more than the tax was. So they were lining their pockets at the expense of the people of Israel. So that's why everybody hated them. That's why they were bad people. Okay, now, now hear this, not to offend your flannel board teacher back in the day, but that is not all that a tax collector is. There's more to the story than they're just extorting people and lining their pockets with a little extra change. Okay, so, so think about first century context, um, and this will help us see kind of, um, tax collector and what they would have meant when, when a person in that listening circle heard this word. First century context, you have got Rome that is ruling the world from literally England to India. Their empire was huge. Okay, now when we think Rome in 21st century America, we oftentimes romanticize Roman, like that whole culture, right? And, and so hear this, they were not a romantic people. They were a ruthless people. They killed people and enjoyed doing it right? And so they would go and conquer a people. And listen, they're not out for your benefit as they conquer you, right? They're going to make you their subjects. So, so they would ruthlessly conquer people. And if those conquered people, if there was just a hint of rebellion in them, then they would ruthlessly crush that. It, it's documented that there was one story of uh, a, a city that re tried to rebel against them. They came in, crushed it, and killed every man, woman, and child in that city. And here's how they did it. 
they, they put crosses lining all the roads. And by the way, it was said that it could have been as many as 20,000 of them. Crosses lining all the roads that led in and around this city. And they crucified every man, woman, and child on those crosses along those roads. And, and here was the point of that. It was to show everyone around them that if you want to rebel against us, us this is your fate. We, we are not playing games here. We're not like the romantic people that will give you another chance. We are going to ruthlessly kill you and do that in a really painful way. Okay, this was the people of, this was the, the, the Roman Empire. This is how they controlled their empire. Okay, now think about this. They're ruling from England to India. How do you keep control of an empire that big? You have a really big army. So, so they had to raise a really big army. Then the question becomes, how do you pay for a really big army? Really simple. You tax those people that, that you conquer. And it is said that there, there were some cities that would be taxed up to 90% of their income. See, you just think we have it bad here, right? 90% of their income going to the, the army that's oppressing them. Okay, now hear that context and now hear what a tax collector is. A tax collector would be a Jewish man who purchased the right from Rome, the oppressing army, to raise or, or to collect the funds from his own people that supported that army. Do you see, do you see what's happening here? That this is not some guy that's just kind of lining his pockets with a little extra money. This is a traitor. This is a person that if you were a patriot, if you were an Israelite, you know, just to your core, you looked at these people with disdain. You wanted nothing other than to kill these people. You hated them. There was a healthy hatred for tax collectors. They were absolute traitors in the minds of the popular people. Okay, so this is those people. They're the, they're the marginalized. They're the socially ostracized. That, that's tax collectors. And then you have um, part two of that first group, the sinners. Now, here's 21st century lens. When you hear sinner, what you think, what you probably think is, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. They're sinners. But that's not like when, when that word sinner is used in Luke um, chapter 15, verse one, it doesn't mean you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. It's That word sinner is used to designate a specific class of people. The, the morally, the, the morally just, I mean, they're, they're out there. They're the, they're the, cra- they're, they're the prodigal, they're, they're the ones that have just gone crazy breaking all the rules. They have no regard for right and wrong. They don't care about the rules of God, the laws of God, the commands of God. They don't care about social etiquette. I, this, those, that group of people, the sinners, this is the promiscuous, the prostitutes. This is the pimps. This would be the drug dealers and the drug ease. This is that whole group of people, the diseased. All of those people fit into this class of sinners. They're the people that, that, that kind of the popular majority, rather than looking at these people, they just look through these people as if they don't exist. Okay, that, that's tax collectors and sinners. And then you have this group too, the, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, um, w- most of us, when we hear the word Pharisee, we know that that's not a good word. Like if I were to come up to you and say, hey, you're a Pharisee, you would have like an instant, I don't think that's a compliment, right? I don't think he's being nice to me right now in the middle of that. You would have an instant He's insulting me here, right? And, and so but I, I want to be fair to them for just a second um, and, and try to give you a, a description of who they were. They were the conservative, kind of popular kind of people of the day. They, they were the moral majority. They were the people who knew right and wrong, who knew the laws of God, who really cared about other people knowing and living by the laws of God. If they were in 21st century America, they would be voting Republican. 
They, they would be the conservative crew. They, they would be that, that, that clean cut. They would be that they're not tatted up. You're not pulling them out of bars on Saturday night. They're, they're the crew that lives right. They're moral. They're good people. That, that's the Pharisees. And it says that they're muttering against this other crowd. And it's in that context that we see this whole chapter unfold. And, and in that context, you see like each one of those two groups, tax collectors, Pharisees on this side, Pharisees and scribes on this. You see the two ways of running from God. So let me just try to lay these out for you. Way number one of running from God goes like this. It is running from God through immoral living. See, this is the obvious way. This is the way of the outwardly rebellious. See, for, for this group of people, when they think, how do I save myself here? Like, how do I get visibility and value, significance and satisfaction? Where and how am I going to get real freedom, genuine freedom? Their answer to that is by breaking the rules. Their answer to that is by breaking all the laws of God. Their answer to that is we can find freedom by being bad. We can find freedom by a six pack. We can find freedom in the bar. We can find freedom by breaking every rule, every commandment that we can think of. Okay, this is way one of running from God. It's running from God through rebellion. Okay, now it's represented in this story by the tax collectors and sinners and by the elder or by the younger brother. Okay, now think about our prodigal in, in the parable of the prodigal son which is really a bad name for the whole story. There's actually two sons, right? And so, but think about our younger brother, the, the prodigal. He, he's the representative person of what it means to try to find freedom, to try to save yourself by actually rebelling, by, by breaking all the rules. So think about what he does. He comes to his father, um, and everything we know about the father, um, kind of the representative of God in this story, is that he has been gracious and good to his kids. And so he comes to his father um, with just a disrespectful request. He looks at him and says, in verse 12, says, give me my share of the inheritance. That would have been one third for him, two thirds for his older brother, but he gets one third of it. Now, this is not a, uh, this is not 21st century living where you can cash your stocks out or you go to your bank account and you draw it out and you get, it's not that. So all their money is tied up in land and in livestock. And so when he says, give me my share, it means I'm selling off our hard assets, our livestock, and I'm giving it to you. Okay, now think about what the prodigal is doing as he makes this request. See, this is essentially what he's saying. Dad, I want the inheritance and I want it so bad that I wish you were dead. See, this is plan A to get the inheritance. Is if you would just die, this thing would go really simple for us all. I mean, there, there isn't a problem, there isn't a glitch in any of this. But, but since you're not complying with plan A, we're going to have to go to plan B. Cash it out and give it to me. See, this is the way of, of breaking all the laws, of, of trying to find freedom, of running from the Father by breaking the rules. This is way number one. Okay, now we've got another way represented though. And this way is going to be represented by the, the Pharisees and the scribes. It's the way of running from God that, that runs through morality. Okay, now think about this. This is the less obvious way of running. See, if, if the prodigal runs in the obvious way, the elder brother in the story runs in the not so obvious way. See, if, if the first way of running from God is through rebellion, outward just full frontal flaunting rebellion, the other way of running from God is through inner rebellion, through a self-righteousness. So you've got these two ways representative of running from God. One way seeks to run from God by breaking all the rules. The other way seeks to run from God by actually keeping all the rules. 
See, one side tries to find freedom and and to try to save themselves visibility, value, significance, and satisfaction by, by being a bad person. And the other way tries to get all of those same things, answers the same question by saying, it's by being a good person. There's these two ways of running from God. So you've got the elder brother. He, he's kind of the, the, the man in the story that, that shows this, the brother in the story that shows this running from God in the other way. And, and when you ask yourself the question, at the end of the story, who, who's outside the feast? The older brother is. See, see, isn't it crazy that in all of his morality, in all of his good living and good behavior, at the end of the day, it got him no closer to the father, actually further from it? Now, isn't that ironic? that you can actually run from God in your obedience, just like you can run from God in your disobedience? Listen to these words of Tim Keller as he tries to describe this. He says, if you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless you and save you, and this is the older brother. You remember, in, I think it's verse 29 where he says, listen, I, I've lived for you all of these years, done everything you want me to do. I, I've, all of these years I've done that. So, so give me mine. Now, now you, you haven't given me anything yet. So, see, he's trying to put God in his debt by actually living good. Like his morality, in some way, in his mind, puts God in a position where now God has to give him things. Okay, now listen to what Keller says. If you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless you and save you, then ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as your teacher, model, and helper, but you are avoiding him as a savior. You're trusting in your own goodness rather than in the goodness of Jesus for your standing with God. You are trying to save yourself, listen to this, by following Jesus. You know that you can actually run from God by trying to follow Jesus? By trying to be the good person through moral conformity, through external obedience, but with a heart that is far from God? Like you can actually, I mean, one of my hopes for us over the next few weeks is that God would expand our view of sin, that it doesn't just encompass bad things we do, but right things we do for the wrong reasons. You see this? You can actually run from God doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Okay, so these are the two ways. You've got one way through moral conformity, through moral living, and another way through immorality. Okay, now let me, let me make this point next. That both of these two ways of running from God have the same heart. Like underneath the surface, if you get beyond their behavior, they both have the exact same heart issues going on. And this is why, going back to the change series of a few months ago, this is why it's never adequate to just deal with behavior. Behavior is never the primary issue. It's just a symptom of the problem. And what we see here in both of these two, the the elder brother and the younger brother, is the same heart was underneath both of their behaviors. It just produced two different ways of going about trying to get what they wanted. So ask yourself the question, with the younger son, what was he going after? What did he want in the story? You know what he wanted? He wanted what the father had. He didn't want the father. He wanted the father's stuff, right? Okay, now ask yourself the question, what did the older brother want in the story? See, ironically, he wants the exact same thing. He says, I've labored for you. I've slaved for you all of these years. And you haven't given me any of this yet. See, he wants the same thing. But here's the ironic thing about it. The same heart in both of them. But for the older brother, it produced moral living. And the younger brother, it produced prodigal living. See, their, their, their same heart was behind it. Their aim was, I want the father's stuff. I don't care what happens to the father. 
But their strategy was different. The younger brother said, I'm going to get the father's stuff by a bold and disrespectful demand. Cash it in, give me the inheritance. The older brother said, I want the father's stuff. I just got a different strategy. I'm going to get your stuff by being a dutiful servant to you, by being a slave to you, by obeying everything that you tell me to do. So then you'll give me the stuff. See, both of them want the same thing. And both of them, listen to this. Both of them, this is one of the major points in the story. Both of them are alienated from the father, just in two different ways. You see what's happening here? You see how subtle sin can be for us? That there's these two ways to run from God? Okay, now here's, here's probably my favorite thing in the entire story. Is I love looking at God's response to our running watching how God responds to his wayward sons and daughters. Isn't it fascinating to read through this and see how he's responding, how his grace runs after? And remember, if, if sin equals running from God in this storied presentation of the gospel, then grace equals God running after sinners, welcoming prodigals in, right? You've got these two things, sin running, grace going after. So, so watch how this works out. Look at verse three. You've got these, the listing circle, you remember them? One group, Pharisees and tax collectors, or, uh, fair, or tax collectors and sinners, they think they are beyond the grace of God. They could never get the grace of God. They, they've done too much that's bad. The other group, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they think they are above the grace of God. They don't need the grace of God. And, and look at what he says here in response to, to the Pharisees. Verse three. So he told them, them Pharisees, this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Okay, now I love this imagery. I love this imagery of the first parable. You know what it calls you? This is gonna be a well-aimed insult at all of us in the room. It calls us sheep. It calls us sheep. Can you believe that? After you get past kind of the offended are you serious? You just called me a sheep? It's kind of funny. He calls you a sheep. He calls me a sheep. Now think about sheep for a second. I, like, I don't claim to know a ton about sheep, but I know at least a couple of things about them. One, sheep are not smart. They're not. And he's calling you a sheep, by the way. You getting that? That you're a sheep. I'm a sheep. We're all sheep. Sheep are not smart. Try to teach your sheep, try, try, to, yeah, try to teach your sheep how to fetch. That is not going to go well, is it? You're not going to teach them tricks. That does not go, see, they're not smart animals. They, they do not know when they're in trouble and they do not know how to get themselves out of trouble, right? Okay, now here's the second thing I know about sheep is that if you leave them alone long enough, their dumbness and stupidity, that, that whole part of sheep, sheep will always get themselves into trouble that they cannot get out of. You know that? He's calling you sheep, by the way. We're sheep. And he's saying, listen, you're not very smart, and, and here's the other thing about you. You're going to get yourself into trouble that you have no idea that you're even in and you have no idea how to get out of. See, th this is the metaphor that God is using to say, this is what sinners are. This is what you are. This is what we are. You're sheep. That's what you are. But here's the beautiful analogy of grace. The, the beautiful picture and parable of grace in this story is God is the shepherd, John 10, who comes after his rebellious sheep. His wayward sheep. His sheep that don't know they're in trouble, that don't want to be rescued out of trouble because they think they're just fine. Those sheep that are going to starve to death before they even know it. Those sheep that when, a, when a, a wolf comes, they're dead. Those sheep. He comes after those people. 
He comes after those sheep. He, he loves those sheep. The, the, I love the picture. This is grace. This is God and his grace responding to our sin and rebellion, our running from him. Now, okay, I, again, I don't know a lot about sheep, but I like to learn from people, especially in passages like this, of people who do know things about sheep. Now listen to this from a shepherd who turned into a pastor talking about sheep. He says this, a sheep is a stupid animal. See, he just says it bluntly. They're stupid, right? A sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its direction continually in a way a cat and a dog never does. And even when you find a sheep, now listen to this, even when you find a sheep, the lost sheep brushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So whenever you find it, listen to what you have to do to it. You must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its four legs together, throw it over your shoulder and carry it home. Now, when you think about what it means to be saved, this is what you should be thinking. I am a sheep. I'm not very smart. I'm in all sorts of trouble that I can't get myself out of. And here comes the shepherd. Now, wouldn't you think that if a sheep had any sort of like mental capacity, he would look at the shepherd and say, thank God you're here. Will you save me? But that's not what a sheep does. It brushes to and fro, doing everything it can to keep from being rescued. See, some people have this mind that when we get saved, we're cooperating with God. Like we're actually saying, God, will you tie me together? God, will you throw me on the shoulder and, and take? That is not what sheep do. They run from the shepherd. They, they, they brush to and fro from the shepherd. And it is God who runs after you, throws you on the ground, seizes you, ties your legs together, throws you over his shoulder and brings you home. That's what it means to be saved. If you're a Christian in the room, that is what God has done to you. You know that? That's what God did to you? He, he is that shepherd who in his grace ran after you in your rebellion, overpowered you and brought you back. And you know what he does when he brings you back? Throws a party and rejoices. Look at this next um, imagery here in verse eight. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? See, God is the picture of the woman seeking in this passage. You're the lost coin. Okay, now think about this because I think a lot of times we have this vocabulary that says, we found God. Do coins find anything? All coins do is get lost. Sheep don't find anything. All they do is get lost and stay lost. It's the, it's the shepherd who finds. It's the woman searching who finds. It's God who finds. And this is a picture of God's relentless and reckless grace for you. That he doesn't give up. It says he's diligent in that. I mean, I picture this scene of God literally turning the house upside down to find that coin. See, this is God's diligence. This is how earnest God is. This is how serious God is in his pursuit of sinners that he would rip a house to shreds to get you. Just this picture of grace. And then look at how, um, and by the way, all three of these stories end this way, but I, I want to just point it out in this second parable. In verse nine, and when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's showing us this picture of the heart of God that is so full of grace that when he rescues his rebellious sheep, throws them over the shoulder, brings them home, that the heart of God is overjoyed at redemption. The heart of God is overjoyed when that sinner comes home and they repent. 
the heart of God is overjoyed at his work for them. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the heart of God? That he literally throws a party. And I think a lot of times we miss it. I hear people quote it like this sometimes, that the angels in heaven are, are rejoicing over a sinner who repents. That's not what it says. It says it's in the presence of the angels. That means it's actually the heart of God that is going on before the angels that is rejoicing, delighting in his redemption of sinners. That when God threw you over his shoulder, walked you into the home, reintroduced you to the family, that there was a feast and a festival that broke out. You see this um, picture of grace in, in the parable of the prodigal son as well. You've got a, a wayward son who was lost. The father runs to meet him, welcomes him in, brings him into the family, and the feast and festival begin. But that's not the only picture. Those, those three pictures of grace are all there, but that's not the only pictures of grace. There's also one more picture of grace, and, and this is how God responds to the other crowd, to, to the self-righteous crowd, to the Pharisees and tax collectors. Um, at the end of the story in Luke 15, the Pharisees and tax collectors, the elder brother, they're the ones standing on the outside of the feast. They won't come in. Now, you know what I would do if I were God? Fine, I'll lock the door, bolt it, and you can stay out there forever. Have a party out there, go for it. That's not what God does. In his grace, you know what he does to the self-righteous? He goes out, he leaves the feast, he leaves the festival, he goes outside the house, and it says he entreats, he pleads with the elder brother. He calls him a son, and that's the first word, this actual Greek word is used. It's a term of endearment in this chapter. It's this term of, of intimacy. Of, he's looking at these Pharisees. He's looking at these self-righteous people, this elder brother, and he's saying, will you please come into the feast? See, it's a picture of grace. This is how God responds to our running, both ways of running. And we'll end it with this. Each runner's response to God I want you to think about this. Each runner's response to God. So not only how God responds to each runner, but how each runner responds to God. And this is the ironic thing in the story. The ironic thing in the story is that who is inside the feast at the end of the story? The, the openly rebellious. Who is outside the feast at the end of the story? The self-righteous and inwardly rebellious. See, the, the immoral person actually made it in and the good, like the good living, the, the, the clean cut, the moral person, he never made it in. He never got into the feast. Isn't that ironic? That at the end of the story, it's the elder brother, the good living one, that the moral liver, the clean cut conservative that doesn't make it. I, in Matthew 21, 31, um, Jesus just says this real plainly. He's looking at the Pharisees and he says, listen, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they make it in the kingdom before you do. And isn't, now listen to this. Isn't this sobering to think? that it might be more eternally dangerous and damning to be running from God in good living as opposed to running from God with bad living. That it might actually be more dangerous. See, because when we run from God in good living, here's what never happens. We don't wake up in a pigsty one day. When we run to God in good living, what starts to happen is we actually, like the elder brother, think we're above the grace of God. Those people might need it, but surely not us. That it might be more eternally damning for you to run from God in good works and good living than to run from God in the immoral, off-the-cuff, flaunting it way. Listen to these words from John MacArthur. He says this, 
of the two types of sinners, the wanton sinner is much more likely. So the wanton is the prodigal, the, the tax collectors and, and uh, sinners. The wanton sinner is much more likely than the sanctimonious sinner, the elder brother, the, the always right sinner, to face the reality of his own sin, to repent and to seek salvation. His sin is, is already covered. It's, it's undeniable talking about um, talking about the younger brother, talking about the prodigal. It's already uncovered. It's undeniable. He has to face up with it, but not so with the Pharisee, with the moral liver. He will try as long as possible to camouflage his immorality, deny his guilt, disavow his need for redemption, and declare his own righteousness. That's why Jesus repeatedly said things like, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. Isn't that ironic? that it might be more dangerous to run from God in morality than to run from God in immorality. You've got these two responses to the grace of God. One response is, is I'm overwhelmed and I've, I've become alive to the grace of God and I rejoice at it. But, but here's the other response of, of the moral living one. Rather than being awakened by grace, he is agitated by grace and he's enraged by it. I mean, it's just a shocking contrast here. Okay, and, and we're done with this one. Last one. That both of these two ways of running are still present today. And this is why I think it's so important for us to spend time, to have a date in Luke 15. Because we need to see both of these ways for running. We need to gain clarity in both of these ways that people run from God. We need to be able to take the gospel and address people who are running from God with immorality. And we need to be able to take the gospel and address those who, like the Pharisees, are running from God in their morality. We've got to be able to address both, and they're both still present. Think about how many millions of people are running from God in their immorality flaunting sin, have no regard for the commands of God, have no regard for kind of social custom, social mores, have no regard for that. I mean, they, they are the Romans one people that they know like kind of this idea that it's breaking God's rules, but they don't care and they entice other people to do it. That, that's there. You can go to any college campus and find about like the bucket fools, right? You can go on most Friday and Saturday nights and just hit any bar you want to and you'll probably find them there. People who are trying to, to, to find freedom by breaking the rules, by, by the next website, by ripping off the next person. Okay, you've got that crowd that is still everywhere. They're in your neighborhood that you work with them. In the first service, I almost said, and I work with them, but that would be really bad if I work with them. I said, man, you got to watch Kevin. It can get really shady around him, right? And so, but, but listen, they're everywhere, okay? Millions of people running from God in their immorality. But listen, people who are running from God in their morality are just as present. You live in the Bible Belt. They're everywhere and don't even know it. See, this is the ironic thing about the elder brother. He was just as lost as the younger brother, but he never knew it. See, this is where you live. You live in the land of Pharisees. You live in the land of the elder brothers. And see, you don't pull elder brothers out of, out of bars on Saturday night. You know what you do for them? You come and see them on Sunday morning in church. They have press slacks, Bible in hand. This is where, this is where elder brothers live. And see, this is why we've got to learn what these things look like, how to address these things with the gospel, and we'll kind of finish with, with this idea. Isn't it interesting that, that Jesus, the life of Jesus, he continually had the, the tax collectors and sinners, that ostracized, 
I feel like I might be beyond the grace of, of God. That crowd was continually around him. In Luke 1, it says that they, or in Luke 15, 1, it says that they gathered around him. And that verb has continuation with it, meaning that they, this was continually happening. This wasn't a one-time affair here. This was always happening with Jesus. There was something compelling about Jesus to that crowd. And I, like, I think it's worth asking this question. Is your life compelling to that crowd? Like, does your family have those people around them? Maybe this is most convicting for us as a corporate family. Does our church family have those people around us? And I want to finish it by this quote from Tim Keller as he addresses that issue and this question. He says this, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches, they're the opposite. Our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones. We tend to draw conservative button down moralistic people. Okay, the, the, the people, the prodigals, the people who are running, the liberated, the, the, that crowd or the broken and the marginal, they avoid church. That can only mean one thing. And listen to his response. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, and listen, they aren't. If they're not appealing to younger brothers, that must be, they must be, our churches must be more full of elder brother types than we'd like to think. And I pray that that over the next few weeks that God would give us in here an awareness of of elder brothering and for Christians, what it means to be elder brother-ish. And the gospel would get down underneath that, root that out in this group of people so that we would wake up and we would realize one day tax collectors and sinners are everywhere around here. Amen? Let's pray. There are, uh, there, there's probably some of us in the room that, that we fit into that younger brother category, that our life has been characterized by trying to find true freedom by breaking the rules. Rather than finding our freedom in what Jesus has done for us, we find, we're trying to find our freedom in, in the next party, the next website, the next, you name of breaking the rules. And, and here's what I think um, needs to be communicated today to you. I just want you to hear this. If that's you today, you are not beyond the grace of God. You're not beyond the grace of God. Jesus, God kind of pictured in this parable as the, the father. He runs to welcome. He kisses you before he, he tries to clean you up. And this is a beautiful picture of the grace of God that, that is big enough to track down even the outwardly rebellious. So just hear that. You're not beyond the grace of God. For the older brother types in the room, and uh, by the way, this is going to be the, the majority of us in here. And you know what's ironic about the older brother? He didn't know he was the pharisaical older brother. He just thought he was a good guy doing good things. And my hope for us is really runs in two different directions as it relates to the elder brother, that some of us are going to realize we are the elder brother. We are 
we are the person who, who is doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons, and we've always wanted the Father's stuff, and we've never wanted God. That, that we've never stepped across the line of faith where we've actually trusted in and treasured God. All we've done is trusted in and treasured in his gifts, what he can give us. And so one, one of my hopes for us is that God would raise that awareness in you and in me, and maybe we would realize, wow, I have completely missed faith. I've completely missed God. But, but then there's going to be another crowd of kind of the elder brother people. That, that It's going to be those of us who are Christians, who are following God, who, who there's been a moment where we trust and treasure Jesus, but we are elder brother-ish. Those tendencies that we had before we were Christians have carried themselves right into post-Christian and we are still trying to, to earn our way into right standing with God. We're still trying to earn our way so God will start to give us stuff. And so I, mean, I hope for you over the next few weeks that God would expose elder brother-ishness in you. That you would see where you lean in that direction. And that God, you, you would hear the voice of God entreating you. Don't stay outside the feast. Come in. Come in. The food is good. The drink is great. Come in. And I pray that, that we would be um, people, both sides of the fence, the immoral and the moral, who lay down our pride and say, more than anything else, I want to be with Jesus. I want to be in that feast. So God, I pray that you would do that for us. God, I pray that you would start to awaken in us where we are in this area. Even for the Christians, we still run in these two ways. So God, will you help bring this to life for us over the next few weeks? Will you breathe life into this chapter? And God, through it, will you breathe life into this group of people? God, I pray that you do it. God, expose things in us. God, show us ourselves. God, make us more self-aware. Give us more awareness of how sin works in our heart, the subtleties of sin. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.